This is the O'Reilly Hardware Podcast. I'm John Bruner. And I'm David Craner. It's never been easier to go from idea to digital design to physical product. The new hardware movement is radically changing the way that technology in the world around us is being conceived, built, and connected. This podcast brings you the new generation of hardware creators who work across the boundary between digital and physical. They're designers, engineers, scientists, artists, and business people. For more information on the new hardware movement and the resources you need to become a full-stack hardware creator, visit O'Reilly.com slash hardware. And if you'd like to send in a question for us to discuss on the show, email us at hardware at O'Reilly.com. Our guest this week is Rachel Kalmar, who is an authority on sensor data, um, has done a lot of interesting work on the stuff that comes off of hardware. We talk a lot about hardware that collects data. Rachel's been the person at the other end of the data stream trying to figure this data out and make sense of it. So uh, she's been at, at Misfit Wearables, which makes the shine. She's the founder of the Censored Meetup in San Francisco. Uh, and now she's independent, a data and sensors sort of consultant who thinks independently about data and sensors. Welcome, Rachel. Thanks. So you think about a lot about data ecosystems, right? What Can you tell us more about what what is a data ecosystem? Data ecosystem is everything about what happens with data from the device level, the hardware and the firmware and the algorithms to how that data is sent off, where it's sent to, is it sent to a base station, is it sent to a phone, how it's stored and represented, what kind of databases it lives in, what kind of, how companies use that, what kind of access they uh, they give other people, how data is shared via API, how companies use data in that way. And so that, that's kind of on the device level, but then also more broadly, how can that data be applied to interesting problems? What are the, some of the challenges with sharing data or with giving people access and control? Uh, what are some of the, the business model issues around data? How can we think about how this evolves with the Internet of Things and mm-hmm. connected devices? Who controls which part of these data ecosystems? And what are all of the forces that shape what kind of data we can collect and what kinds of things we can use this for now and in the future? It sounds like it's almost more philosophy than engineering. <laughs> it's some of both. It's everything from figuring out okay, well, we need this resolution in order to be able to solve these problems to, hey, you know, we want to use this data for these applications. What are all of the barriers that we're going to run into from technical challenges to business model challenges to policy challenges now or in the future? I sit at the intersection of data, hardware, and healthcare. Mm -hmm. And so in the healthcare world, there, there are a lot of open questions, say, about the FDA and how do companies move forward building products when we don't really know what the future looks like in terms of regulation and how can we work with government agencies like the FDA to figure out the the best way forward we spend a lot of time uh you know on this podcast and and in talking about hardware in general thinking about the modularity of of hardware and the systems that you build and and you know creating APIs that are abstracted and so that you can you can have these like clean breaks between different people and different functions. So I create a piece of hardware. Um, you know the electronics have an API. They send data to something that touches the the API and gets the data, and then it's clean and beautiful. And and the person running that section doesn't have to give any thought to the electronics underneath it. The person doing the electronics doesn't have to give any thought to the data. Are 
are you implying that people need to think more broadly than just uh, than just whatever abstracted module that they're looking at? Sure. I mean, data is not some fundamental truth about the universe. Data is the thing that you've collected, but mm-hmm. how you've collected it influences what kind of data it is. So I like to make the comparison, um, comparing data to wine. Hmm. So you could say, hey, this is grape-based ethanol, and that would describe wine. <laughs> I don't know a terribly uh, large amount about wine, but I know that there, there are many different kinds of wines, mm-hmm. and they're down to which uh, vineyard was this grown in, and which year, mm-hmm. and was it a rainy year, and everything from the soil composition uh, to the way the grapes were grown influences the flavor the of character. the wine. The character of the wine. And data is very similar. Data mm. doesn't come abstract out of an API. It does, but it, that's like saying we have grape-based ethanol. Yeah, uh, It's very nuanced. Uh, th- there are a lot of nuances that are important to understand when you want to apply it to something or when you want to use it. And so mm. understanding, say, for wearables, where was this device worn? What resolution was the accelerometer run at? Is it was mm-hmm. it 8-bit data or 12-bit data? Uh, what kind of algorithms were used in the firmware to to process this data? Because the raw data is not necessarily what's stored or sent to an app or a server. And so there are a lot of judgment calls that are made before you even see data that comes out of the API. Mm-hmm. And it's important to understand what all of those are in shaping what kinds of things you want to use this data for. So I imagine you're a skeptic of, of throwing a black box machine learning algorithm at, at everything without taking any, any fundamentals into account. You can. You might find interesting things, but if you find things that don't necessarily make sense, it's going to be hard to understand why. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. My, my background before uh, working on connected sensor devices and hardware was in neuroscience. Mm -hmm. And so I spent most of my career sticking electrodes in brains and looking at at many noisy signals. And you can get whatever signals you not you you can't get whatever signals you want out of the brain, but you you record these signals Mm -hmm. and you can apply whatever algorithms you want. (laughs) But are you finding something interesting or are you finding noise? Uh Uh And it's important to have some understanding of what you expect when you go in. That, that's not to say that there, there's nothing uh, interesting that can be done by applying machine learning algorithms to large data sets, but I think it all comes down to what are the kind of questions you're trying to answer. And there's definitely a space for exploratory data analysis, mm-hmm. but often you're going to find you might find something interesting, you might find something that you don't really know how to interpret. And if you don't know how that data was collected, it could be that you've found artifacts mm-hmm, mm-hmm. in your data set. And hey, you know, all of these people, you find two clusters that show differences, not in, say, activity, but in the operating system of the phone mm-hmm, on which mm-hmm. the data was collected. Like you could, I'm sure you can find that, but that might not be super interesting. Right, right, right. And it's worth mentioning at this point for the listener that um, who can't who can't see Rachel that uh, she's wearing many different uh, tracking devices. How many actually do you have on? I think now I'm down to something like ten. But for the last three years, I've worn between ten and thirty-eight devices every single day. Wow! Um, do you compare all the data from each one, or why do you? Why do you mostly, do that? I've given talks about how I can't 
get the data, although uh, interoperability and the ability to get data via APIs is getting better. So you can back up a step and talk about why I started wearing. Mm. Yeah, because I noticed devices. that it, it occurred to me in the context of like the importance of thinking about data context that, you know, you're wearing a Misfit Shine uh, on a necklace and on your wrist. Mm-hmm. And uh, I imagine you're interested in how each of those collects sort of different different characteristics. Yeah. A few years ago when I was at Misfit Wearables and we were starting to work on the Shine, which was our first activity tracker, I wanted to try out all of the activity trackers and get a sense of how the data compared and what I liked about which ones and how the the data compared uh, within a wearing position and across wearing positions. Is the data coming from your ankle? How does the data coming from your ankle differ from the data in your mm-hmm. waist? How does a Fitbit compare to a Jawbone compare to a Misfit device? And so started wearing all of these devices and thought that I would just download the data from mm-hmm. all of them. And that's... Into the world's biggest CSV, yeah. I imagine. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And that's where when I... So starting to do that, I, I realized that I couldn't get the data. You can't download... You can download some of the data from some of the websites, um, but none of them give you time-resolved data. You can't mm-hmm. get, say, minute-by-minute data mm-hmm. from any of the devices. And... That was the the beginning of a, a pretty big tangent, which was trying to understand more generally why it is that companies have made these decisions mm-hmm. and what what is the data coming off of these devices and what are some of the barriers and enablers to sharing this kind of data. Mm-hmm. And so one of the challenges is that all of these devices count steps. Mm-hmm. But a step is not exactly a fundamental unit of measure. I know what a step mm-hmm. is for walking. Mm-hmm. If I take 100 steps on a treadmill, you know, most of these devices do a pretty good job of counting mm-hmm. that. But I do a lot of things that aren't walking. Biking over here, I, I biked over uh, lawns and parks and <laughs> other things, uh, trying yeah. to avoid this, the Super Bowl 50 street uh-huh. closures. How many steps was that? Mm-hmm. Uh, and so for things like swimming, is each individual stroke a step mm-hmm. or if is should it be the same for for backstroke and for butterfly mm-hmm. is it based on each arm how about for cycling like steps is kind of a fuzzy metric and mm-hmm. so or a funny metric to apply to other things and so everybody has their own ways of filling in the gaps by giving you points or other kinds of activity scores mm. but that makes it really hard to compare across devices and so steps is this thing that you know, there's the, a distribution of signal and a distribution of noise, and mm-hmm. it, they're not cleanly separated. And so everybody has to decide, okay, this is a step, this isn't a step. And everybody draws their threshold somewhere slightly different. And that's more of a judgment call. Like, hey, mm-hmm. you know, we're building, you might say, hey, we're building these devices to encourage people to be more active. Therefore, we want to err on the side of overcounting rather than undercounting or other mm-hmm. people... Other companies might say, hey, you know, we want, we don't want to overcount. Mm-hmm. And so everybody's made a slightly different judgment call and they're not mm. wrong. Yeah, yeah. It's just that you, you don't have two distinct distributions. Interesting. And so where you draw that threshold is important for, for your, your total count. But it, that's something that most people don't really understand. Mm-hmm. And so 
when people, if people were to get, say, minute by minute data, the first thing that they're going to do is not applaud your company for being so open and giving access to Mm -hmm. uh, minute by minute step counts. The first thing people are going to do is write blog posts about how inaccurate you are. Right. And start second guessing your your call. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. And it turns out it's not. It's not that the device is inaccurate, but that those are judgment calls that were made in mm-hmm. building the device. And that's mm-hmm. why data is not data. Yeah, not yeah, data. Yes. Data is a, the output of a lot of different judgment calls right. that people have made from how did you manufacture this device? What, what kinds of microcontrollers are you using? Which accelerometers are you using? Mm-hmm. Uh, how do you compress your data, et cetera? All of these things go into what you get out. And so I realized that I couldn't get my data for a lot of reasons, but there were also other reasons that made it hard to share data, even if companies wanted to. And so I, I ended up thinking a lot about this question, which is how do companies do right by their users and give people access to their data mm-hmm. and also make their devices more interoperable because a device sitting in its own silo is not as useful mm-hmm. as devices that can talk to all the other devices. Um, but still, how do you still do that while s- still being competitive as a company? Sure, sure. Because I think that that's one thing that that is very different for hardware than for software. Uh, if you are a, a device that collects data, you're not exactly a hardware product. Mm-hmm. You're a mm-hmm. data product, and no no company gets funding to make a plastic wristband and make a margin on the hardware. Right, right, right. And so your data is your product, but we're still as a field trying to figure out how do you monetize the data coming from these devices? It's not selling it. Right. It's not necessarily just selling the hardware, but how do we build sustainable ecosystems around these kinds of devices and Mm -hmm, this kind of data? mm -hmm. At a basic level, um, do these devices count steps by actually sort of linking a particular, you know, pattern registered by the accelerometer and counting it as a step? Or is it more abstract than that? Is there like a machine learning algorithm that registers a certain period of a pattern as like 12 steps and, and estimates it that way? A lot of these things come down to the question of battery life. Mm-hmm. Uh, you can run all sorts of complicated algorithms on your device if you want, but some computations are more expensive than others. Mm-hmm. And so there's a trade-off between what, how smart do you want your algorithms to be and how long do you want your battery to last. Interesting. And so the algorithms are some kind of taking accelerometer data run some sort of algorithm, whether it's pattern matching or there are many things you could do. You could mm-hmm. run um, FFT, so a fast Fourier transform is great, but it's mm-hmm. also very computationally expensive. Mm-hmm. And so all of these things are trade-offs. It's your battery life. Yeah, and so the kind of counting that's done, say, on a, on a device versus on your phone might be different. Okay, okay. Yeah, and so there, there are multiple layers then where some of it is done in the device, some of it is done in the phone, and some of it is done in the cloud. Yeah, those are those are all trade-offs, and the data yeah. that you get from an API is based on judgment calls about which computation is right, done right, where. right. That's an awesome illustration of fog computing. I'm always looking for mm. for ways to talk about it. Fog computing is this term that Cisco started to use a little mm. while ago for the idea that computing doesn't just happen in the cloud or on the ground, but like mm-hmm. along a continuum between cloud and ground and and the fog. stuff. Yeah, so fog computing everywhere, man. Yeah. Um, but the, but you know the the examples are are usually kind of uh, 
you know, well, you have a traffic light and it has a router and it's doing this thing. And there's like an industrial gateway somewhere and it's doing this thing. This is a way better example. That's yeah. much more relatable. So thank you for that. Yeah. yeah. And what happens when you can't connect to the internet? Do you have backup algorithms that mm -hmm. can run on your phone locally if you can't connect to the cloud? Mm -hmm. Internet outage gives, gives an entire city the wrong <laughs> output on their fitness trackers. And mm -hmm. yeah, yeah. So to go back to data ecosystems, mm -hmm. um, I suppose I can see how a kind of data designer or, or strategist sitting on top of it needs to think down through the stack to the electronics and consider the, the fundamentals that are going into the data. Um, what about the people uh, doing the low level work, designing the electronics and the APIs sort of where, how do they need to consider um, the data ecosystem? I think the question is, how is this data going to be used? Mm -hmm. And how do you make your decisions about what kind of algorithms you want to implement and what kind of data you want to share? I think a lot of that depends on who's using it later and what kinds of things are they hoping to achieve. Uh, so a comparison that I, I like to make, I love making these comparisons, <laughs> uh, is that I like to compare all of these devices that I'm wearing to mills that are generating flour. Okay. And... So these things are generating data and giving people, say, step count. And most people say, okay, that, that's nice. I can, I can get flour from these mills, but I don't bake. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. What, what, what use is step count to me? I, I, don't, I, don't, I don't know what to do with this. I don't know what to do with this bag of flour sitting in mm -hmm. my house. And the answer is, of course, you don't want flour. Most people don't want flour. Most people don't want their, their raw data. What you want are cookies. Mm -hmm, and you mm -hmm. want baked goods. And you want to be able to go to restaurants. And you want there to be catering companies and a whole industry that rests on top of being able to get flour. Mm -hmm. And so I think that we're in a kind of funny space now as a field because we have the ability to give people raw data. But that's not really what most people want. There, there are definitely communities of people and plenty of people who love having their data and can completely geek out. Mm -hmm, I call mm -hmm. the, the state of activity trackers and wearables uh, right now kind of BYOQ, bring huh. your own question. Okay. So uh -huh. if you have a question that data can help you answer, great. Yeah, you have yeah. many ways to get this data now, but it's not necessarily going to give you answers that you didn't set out mm -hmm, to, mm -hmm. to find. And so if you like baking, great. If not, well, we don't quite have cookies mm -hmm. for sale mm -hmm. yet. Um, and so what would a cookie look like in this industry? A cookie would be some kind of app or product or service that sits on top of incoming data mm -hmm. and ideally can propagate value back to the device makers too. It's mm -hmm. another tangent I can go on later. <laughs> but uh, it's something that you as a user will pay for and will add value to your life. So an example like to give about this would be Say I have like a Dexcom blood glucose monitor okay. and it could um, measure if my blood sugar is getting low and it could automatically connect to a taco copter that would come and deliver me a taco. Mm -hmm. Like that way, I don't have to go through this process of figuring out, am I hungry? No, maybe mm -hmm. the people around mm -hmm. me are just kind of annoying right now. <laughs> uh, it seems like a lot of work to go find food. What do I want to eat? And have a closed feedback loop that just said, you've already authorized, you've signed in, you've paid your, for the subscription, um, and you've authorized for the taco copter to come deliver you lunch. Right, right. Like, that's the kind of thing that, I mean, not that exactly, but things like this that use data to do things that we've authorized them to do mm -hmm. to help solve problems that we don't even realize are, are problems. And so... 
I think that there will be apps and services and other things built on top of these data layers. Mm -hmm. We don't quite have those yet, uh, but everybody's prototyping, like, what would a cookie look like? Mm -hmm. Is this a cookie? Mm -hmm. No, people aren't really eating that that cookie. Okay, we'll go back to the right, right. back to the kitchen and try something else. It's a good analogy for the for the state of the entire sort of connected devices mm -hmm. and, and new hardware um, industry. Everyone has built you know little layers that don't do that much on their own, and people are sort of unconvinced. The consumer, at least, is unconvinced. Mm -hmm. um, you know that the the Hue light bulb is a cool thing, but it's basically a novelty until like three other layers come into come into play. And mm -hmm. I've thought about this a lot because I I bought some Hue light bulbs you know three years ago uh, when that was the thing that. That one did, and, and you like uh, set them up and like pulled out your phone and like made your living room red, and you were like, "Sweet, <laughs> yep, exactly, exactly." Hey Bethany, come check this out. Yep, and then and she was like, like, "Sweet, <laughs> yep," and then like, and then you and then you set them back to kind of a soft white setting, yeah, yeah. and then you uh, and then good, yeah. you eventually stop using your phone to control them because that's the most annoying thing ever, and you just like turn them on and off like regular light switches, <laughs> and then you move and you've forgotten that you have Hue light bulbs and you notice you have Hue light bulbs and. But a few months ago, I got an Amazon Echo, which is the speaker that mm -hmm. sits on your on your desk and uh, controls a variety of things through a kind of if this then that uh, interface. And that turns on my lights in the living room now. And so now I'm using my lights. Like finally, um, I wouldn't have said that that was the big drawback to the Hue bulbs. Maybe I would have actually interface. pulling out your phone to turn on the lights is a is is stupid. It's a step backward. But I wouldn't necessarily have anticipated that the answer was going to come in the form of a voice controlled speaker i would have said like well you know maybe i'll i'll get a, a light switch that hue makes that like turns on the lights which again then, the then you have a 200 dollars I mean, thing that yeah. replaces a, a five dollar thing but uh someone came along with another module that another layer that sits on top of it and that interacts with it and it's just made the whole thing much much easier to use can we try an experiment right now yeah alexa turn off the lights I'm curious if anybody uh, has please, been please, listening yeah, to this in their living room yeah. <laughs> and oh, yeah, their yeah, lights yeah. turned off. I'm, right. I'm also curious more generally whether that's the kind of thing that that will start happening. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, there and, was the and by the way, Xbox you, thing. If, and by the way, if your lights did go out or or even just your Alexa was in the room and you heard Rachel say that, send us an email at hardware at O'Reilly.com. We want, we want data on this. Yeah, or a tweet or anything, really. I want to know which anarchy we're causing in our users' living rooms. Or there was that whole, uh, the whole, the Xbox thing. I think I've told you about this before, maybe. It was, you know, the new Connect has uh, voice commands on the Xbox uh, One. And so there's this hilarious YouTube video of someone who like signed into their Xbox Live account, like called their Xbox Live account something like XX420 Xbox turn off like 420XX or something. <laughs> and it's like this video where it just goes into like games and just, you know, is really annoying to people until they start yelling at him because everyone yells at each other on Xbox Live all the time. And like, there's like, gosh, dang it, you know, Xbox turn off. Oh, crap. And then they, <laughs> then it's like so-and-so connected user has been disconnected from the game. Uh -huh, so I get uh -huh. people to to call him call him by his name, and then the connect interprets that as the command, and then yeah, yeah, yeah. Turns so it's off. like the XKCD. Yeah, little Bobby tables. Yeah, little Bobby table. <laughs> Explain that. Uh, there's a XKCD cartoon where the school calls up mom and says, "Did you really name your son Robert Drop Tables?" <laughs> yeah. And yeah. She says, "Yes, yes, yeah, little like, Bobby like, tables." Yeah, we call yeah, them. yeah. Uh -huh. Close drop tables. Yeah. Close parentheses. <laughs> like quote. Yeah. It's like yeah. It's uh. It's IRL SQL injection. <laughs> so uh, uh, there there was a, there's an important application of this in the case of the Amazon Echo, which is that it can be connected to a handful of home automation devices, including like. Uh, 
the the August lock and some of these other connected locks. And Amazon has actually had to disable the ability to use the Echo to control a lock or, or a handful of other security related things because of the chance that someone could shout into your window like Alexa, open the locks or, or even just Alexa, you know, lock the locks and uh and really mess with your stuff yeah i I guess it brings up an interesting question too about authentication and who how do you need to prove who you are in order to control things in your Mm -hmm. house and does everybody in your house have the same rights can say your kids come up and turn on the tv in the middle Mm -hmm. of the night Mm -hmm. um i mean right now we have buttons and things like that but yeah if you have people staying? Can you give them different privileges? Mm -hmm. But I I think I'm curious. I I don't know how good voice authentication is where, say, Alexa would be able to differentiate between different people. Yeah, it um, ours at least is not set up to differentiate between anyone. Anyone in the living room can say Alexa and she wakes up. Excuse me. It wakes up. Mm -hmm. (laughs) It's you start to talk about it as a human. Um, You say Alexa and it wakes up. Uh, I I do have the voice activation on on my Android phone and it replies to uh, OK, Google. It just went on. And um, my wife enjoys uh, sitting around and trying to imitate me and seeing if she can get my phone to wake up and has so far been unsuccessful. No one has imitated me well enough yet to turn on my phone. So there's some sort of filter here. They, they, I think they've they've opted toward a more secure approach because often it doesn't reply to me either. So um, maybe it's just angsty. Yeah, but it's well, I mean, every time it someone- with your crap, John. Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> Shut up, John. I'm trying to rest. Stop um, Googling. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Do your work. Um, so uh, every time someone comes up with a new authentication scheme that's easier than like punching in your code, people figure out how to how to mess with it. So there's uh, an authentication method that involves, you know, holding the selfie camera up to your face, taking mm. a picture of yourself. That's pretty easy to defeat because you can use a photo for the, of the mm. owner. Um, yeah. You know, even as soon as the the first iPhone with the the thumbprint thing came out, someone figured out how to lift a thumbprint off the back of the phone and then, mm-hmm. you know, duplicate it in a way that, uh, that, the, that the thumbprint thing detects. So mm-hmm. it's, it's going to be tough, but it's, it's a similar problem to what, um, in the, in the abstract to what they're facing in, you know, industrial security as they try to put stuff online where industrial controls security has always just been, well, if you're standing in front of this giant box in a factory, you're authorized to touch the box. The, the assumption is that, You've gotten through a handful of chain link fences and there's like a guard at the at the gate and now you're inside the factory and you have your tag and your hard hat on and so now the you know so we don't need to put like a stupid little like liquor cabinet key on it yeah exactly exactly like you're 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 authorized if you're standing in front of the thing which is obviously not the case on the internet anymore yeah i think that there are a lot of interesting questions when it comes to wearables too and not necessarily for being able to access devices but are we moving toward systems where it becomes more and more mandatory to wear things mm-hmm. that are easy to identify uh, people through. So I've been reading a few articles lately about things like employee health programs where they're becoming not so optional anymore mm-hmm. and people are being penalized if they don't say opt in to wear a device. Mm-hmm. There's another mm-hmm. article that I read recently about a university that is uh, making it a requirement for students to wear Fitbits, mm-hmm. which on one hand, Weird. cool, there's a lot of interesting data to be gathered from that. On the other hand, these things 
it's really easy to, it, it can be easy to identify individuals based on patterns. Mm -hmm. And perhaps it's inevitable that we're moving towards a world where everything that we do is tracked. Mm -hmm. Although there are a lot of security and privacy implications that I think we haven't completely thought through. Yeah, yeah. And so this this is something that I find a little bit worrisome that, you know, we, we've already been carrying around our phones mm -hmm. and many things that can track us, but it's becoming harder and harder to opt out of these systems individually. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, well, you know, there was a, uh, I saw on the internet the other week that somebody did a study once and apparently, statistically speaking, 87% of the U.S. population can be uniquely identified by their date of birth, gender, and zip code. Hmm. So, like, well, think about what can be done with with like yeah. super duper granular data, 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 data being uh, being generated by devices that you're either choose to wear or being compelled to wear. Right, right, right. Well, I mean, a similar similar findings have involved uh, search engine patterns, mm -hmm. and um, well, AOL got in trouble for this a few years ago when they were magnanimous and released a giant body of what they thought was anonymized search engine data. Uh, for researchers to use mm -hmm. and then researchers I mean the first thing that, <laughs> that the researchers who downloaded it did was figure out that they could identify individuals by their search patterns because they're you know someone is people people search for their own names all the time people search for things related to the city that they're in and um, you know and they and they found half a dozen people who have you know whose search patterns revealed who they are and what medical problems they're experiencing and it was mm -hmm. you know hugely troubling that um, that this kind of thing is is discernible that way one of the consolations to me occasionally is the realization that as more of this goes online, it actually becomes more anonymous once again. If it's like a universal feature of society that um, you yourself become lost in the noise. Yeah, totally. I mean, I've 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 always sort of felt comfortable, you know, when Gmail came out around 2005, I guess, or 2004, uh, there was a lot of anxiety about how it was going to read your email, right, and show you uh, contextual ads that mm -hmm. that were related to the content of your email uh that was novel then and people it dawned on people that you know google was in some sense reading your email but i mean you're you're one of hundreds of millions or of gmail users is it an invasion of privacy when when your information is in fact like not discoverable by any human because there's just so much data and and a, an individual human can't interpret it at all i think there are a lot of open questions one of the things that I struggle with is I want to make our, our data ecosystems as open as possible, but I also understand that the fact that everything lives in different silos right now mm -hmm. gives us a lot more privacy security than we might otherwise have. Mm -hmm. So I guess the question is, how do we make our systems more open without inadvertently shooting ourselves in the foot? Right, right, right. Yeah, because every time Every time a uh, a fitness tracking company gives up the granular data that you might really enjoy as an individual, they're also kind of exposing it in some way to uh, people who would combine it with other data and make an intrusive assumption about you. Yeah. I mean, right now we have flashlight apps on our phones that take a lot more data from you than a flashlight app would need. Mm -hmm. uh, what happens when these apps are also asking for data about what we do every day mm -hmm. and our daily mm -hmm. patterns. We've already seen a couple cases where Fitbit data has been used in a courtroom. Hmm. Um, to, the, in, for, for what? Uh, so the, the more recent case was uh, a woman who claimed that she was sexually assaulted. Somebody broke into her house in the middle of the night and woke her up. And 
there was no evidence of forcible entry into her house. And then her Fitbit data was uh, called in and it showed that she hadn't been woken up in the middle of the night that she had been awake. Oh, interesting. Hmm. So are you doing what you say you're doing? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it contradicted her testimony. Mm-hmm. That's, an, that's an unexpected twist on it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. So everything is discoverable now. And, yes. and that's, that's, that's kind of the backstop to all of this is like, mm-hmm. it may be that your fitness tracker is like siloed enough that it's not going to go into your AdWords profile and, For now. you know, get linked into everything else. But it's, but the fact that it's there means that a, a suitably forceful, you know, judicial system or something mm-hmm. could, could retrieve it and, and, mm-hmm. it, and it could find its way into your life. Is Alexa listening to all of the music that you play? And or the things that you, the brands that you're discussing in your house. Yeah. I, that's and if actually, Alexa's not, is some other company able to build something on top of these data streams? Right, right, right. It is. Yeah. And I guess the question is, what kinds of things do you keep locally versus mm-hmm. sending to servers? And how do we collectively have discussions about what we think the right, uh, the right norms are for these kinds of things? Mm-hmm. We all collectively decided as, as a society that Google Glass was too creepy for mainstream everyday use. But Google Glass was really hard to miss because it's on people's faces. Mm-hmm. Um, what other kinds of cultural norms should we be discussing uh, whether it's something that's consumer facing or as hardware manufacturers, how should we be thinking about how this data gets stored? Do we log things locally? Does everything get sent up to a central server? Mm-hmm. Um, there are some kinds of data that can help for things like debugging. Do you have debugging modes? Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. But I think there are a lot of open questions. And I, as a, a data scientist, I'm I'm excited about the idea of being able to get lots of data from different sources. But I also understand that there could be consequences to that that perhaps uh, are not really in the public interest. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Do you think that conversation is going on now in the right places? Are there places where you, that you think are doing a really good job of, of starting to have this conversation? I think that a lot of the, the bigger companies say like Amazon and Samsung and Facebook and Google internally think about a lot of these mm-hmm. issues. Startups, I'd say, are a little bit different because as a startup, you need to figure out how to make money next mm-hmm. quarter, next year. And as somebody who did my own hardware startup that failed for lack of good business model, mm-hmm. um, I understand that no matter how open and wonderful and secure your, your device is, wow. if you can't make money, if you can't get users to adopt what you're doing, then you don't exist. And so mm-hmm. you're not doing anybody any favors. And so I think that the conversation, although I think it is happening in a lot of places, it could be happening in bigger forums, um, Mm -hmm. say meetup groups. And this is something that has been discussed in the censored meetup. Um, But I think that it's not just the responsibility of companies and of government, but for for other people in the field or lay people to, to think about these issues and decide what we collectively want to do. So all of this data at the moment is sitting in uh, in silos, and we're kind of looking toward big companies like uh, Apple and Google and Amazon to be the giant platforms that tie everything together, but everyone is trying to become the giant platform that ties everything together. Do you see a future where we rely on a handful of companies to tie together all of our data, or is this going to be a much more sort of ad hoc thing? Yeah, I think that there are a lot of open questions here. I would love to see more 
open ways that devices can communicate that doesn't rely on, say, using a company to be, say, the municipal utilities for the Internet of Things. One thing that worries me about having these uh, companies be, say, a data platform is that it can end up commoditizing the hardware. Mm-hmm. Companies say, hey, you know, like with, with HealthKit and with HomeKit from Apple, they say, Apple says, hey, you do what you do best, hardware company. You go, go to China, make, make your hardware, and we'll, we'll deal with the data side. Mm-hmm. But the challenge is that those companies haven't gotten funding to make a margin on the hardware. Right. Those companies have this vision of apps and services and other things built on this data. Yeah, yeah. And so one thing that I, I, I do think that we need to spend more time collectively thinking about is how do we send value back to companies actually making the, uh, the hardware or mm. the, the data input. And so things like that could work could be things like pay per API call, like mm-hmm. below a mm-hmm. certain number of users, sure, you can build your apps or services, whatever, on top of our device. But beyond that, you know, you, you pay some amount and that allows the, the company building the device or the hardware to be able to benefit from many people using it Interesting. Um, as well. And that's not something that we have right now, but I think collectively the field is trying to figure out yeah. how do we monetize the data coming from these devices Selling the data isn't, I think, anybody's idea of a sustainable plan, but I think that there's also a danger where if we separate the hardware and the data too strongly, that that will have the effect of commoditizing the hardware, which is ultimately not in any of our best interests. Right, right, right. That's a really interesting idea to sort of return, return the value um, of, the, of the data on the platform back to the people who are generating it. Because it, it is an area where uh, the really big companies could easily crush a lot of the startups by like partnering with them too aggressively in a way or like you know sort of crush the ecosystem in its in its infancy mm-hmm. um, by capturing all of the the value at their level mm-hmm. so now we move on to click spiral which is a segment where each of us talks about a, a thing that's completely absorbed us on the internet um, something that turns out to be extraordinarily interesting you haven't come across it before um, Wikipedia begets uh, forums begets uh, catalog browsing begets YouTube videos or whatever, and, and, um, and you look up and then you, you discover that you, uh, you have learned much, much more about you know, micrometers than you thought you would uh, ever learn about them. So if you, if you are listening and you have a click spiral yourself that you want us to uh, get absorbed in and then discuss on a later episode of the podcast, you can email hardware at O'Reilly.com. And um, David and I will lose a couple hours to it, and then we'll, uh, we'll talk about it here. But for now, we'll start with uh, with David. What is your click spiral today? Uh, well, this week I've been very interested in what's going on with the FTDI chips. I don't know if you guys, do you, are you guys familiar with FTDI chips? It nope. is a USB to serial conversion integrated circuit that is very popular for using on things like Arduinos and uh, other projects which require you know you to think plug something into a USB connector. And this is a Scottish company, and they've taken a very uh, aggressive approach to fighting hardware piracy, which is they have pushed out an update to their driver software that's propagated through the Windows driver update service and everything that if it detects, the driver detects that it's connected to a device which uses a fake FTDI chip, it will uh, break it and also <laughs> have it spew like erroneous data into the serial stream that says what? like, that says like, this is a counterfeit thing. 
So, they, they, so it's malicious. It's malicious, <laughs> yeah. And they, they've done this before. A few years ago, they actually had an update that would just brick the device. And then there was, there was outrage and they, they backed down from it. But this one actually like maliciously does stuff. Um, and so it's brought up a very interesting discussion about like, well, you know, some people are like, yeah, stick it to those pirates because it's hard to combat hardware piracy or any kind of piracy, really. Um, but then, you know, there's also the point of if they're not going to provide their developers with with their own way of detecting whether or not the chips that they're buying are counterfeit or not, then you're really just blaming the, you know, the, the person who ends up suffering for it is the is the consumer. And then mm-hmm. that kind of blows back on the people designing it and the people designing it just don't want to use FTDI chips anymore because they don't know how to tell if the ones that they're using are real or not. It's like punching someone and then asking them to pass the punch down the line and like eventually maybe the punch lands on the person it should land on. Exactly. And I mean, yeah, I mean, I guess there's some kind of like economic argument that could be made for like, well, the customers then won't buy chips from these people who are making devices and then those people will like try harder to get to source real chips or something like that. But it just seems like the the trickling, the economic trickling seems non-optimal to me. Yeah, yeah. And it's kind of the the inverse of the advantage of being able to update software over the air. I mean, everyone wants to create hardware that can be updated over the air, hopefully to avoid things like this, hopefully so that you can patch problems. But wait, is this happening over the air or is it no, built into the firmware? It, no, so, it, well, so, it, so it's, you know, so like you have a chip and then it, and then that chip will, you plug into your computer, basically. Like the, this chip is the thing that bridges between your, your hardware thing that you've built and the USB port on your computer. So when you plug it in to the computer, it, sees a, it sees an FTDI device and and so then there's a driver which tells the computer how to talk to the FTDI device you know and this driver is like a piece of windows software that's put out by FTDI mm-hmm. and they you know there's like this repository of windows drivers you know how like when you plug in a new device it's like windows is getting the the software for your device blah blah, blah whatever mm-hmm. um and it installs it and makes it work well the the software that that they provided to make that work also checks to see if the the physical device is genuine or not and if not then it like breaks everything hmm. so there's really nothing that you can do about it as a as a consumer if you just buy a device like if you buy a arduino of, of dubious origin there's a chance that if you're running the latest driver set then like it just won't work and you need this software yeah because that's what that's what tells the computer how to talk to it like a usb port all right john what do you, what do you have so um I've been going a little farther afield from electronics and um, discovered this thing. I mean, to to say that I discovered this thing is an overstatement. I discovered this thing on Wikipedia. (laughs) Other people actually put on hard hats and like helmet lights and discovered this thing. It's called the Cave of the Crystals. And it's in Mexico underneath a lead mine, um, very close to a bunch of sort of geothermal areas. And it has these humongous gypsum crystals in it. I'll show you a picture. here at the recording table. And then in the show notes, you'll be able to find a a link to an article about it. But look at this photo with the person standing below for for scale. Wow. It reminds me of the like journey to the center of the earth movie from like Disney or whatever back in the... Reminds me of Honey, I Shrunk the Kids. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. totally, totally. It's it's otherworldly. And um, there's another another cave directly above it uh, where the temperature is a little bit different called the Cave of the Swords, which is... A really cool name, arguably a cooler name than Cave of the Crystals, um, but uh, the crystals there are not quite as big. So this stuff forms when uh, you know mineral-laden water uh, goes through this really hot geothermal area and then turns into steam and deposits on onto the walls under certain conditions. And it was discovered after this mine drained the groundwater out of a bunch of chambers below it in order to expand. And they found these in- incredible crystals, and 
after they kind of do a bunch of studies, they're just going to let the mine fill back up and they will be forever, once again, lost to encapsulated uh, to man. Yeah. Um, I've mentioned this to a few people and they've been like, oh, cool, let's visit there on a vacation. And um, you can't because it's 136 degrees Fahrenheit in this room with uh, 99% humidity. Wow. Where does so the heat no come 40 from? foot long crystals on an upcoming vacation. Where does the heat come from? Is it, is it like geothermal? Yeah, all geothermal. Wow. Um, it also makes you consider uh, what a tough job it is to work in a lead mine. I don't know if that's a if that's a career that any of us has ever considered, but there's a lot of footage when you read about this stuff of people descending in in a giant elevator in mm-hmm. a truck, and then you drive in the the air conditioned hmm. truck to like the door of the cave, and then you open the cave. So I think it's pretty automated at this point. But I didn't even think about how much lead we maybe still use. We use it still for blocking X rays, mm-hmm. for mm-hmm. other things like that. For municipal plumbing, apparently, as recently yeah, as in, a few decades ago. In Michigan, yeah. Municipal plumbing in Michigan. It's yeah, really yeah. Good, good for that as well. Unfortunate, yeah. I also saw lead in use at a pipe organ factory mm. for uh, in Gloucester, Massachusetts. Where, CB Fisk. CB Fisk, where we had uh, someone speak mm-hmm. from Fisk at the first solid about um, building pipe organs. And they use it to fabricate their own sheet metal. So organ pipes are made out of usually some alloy of zinc, lead, and tin. And... If you really want to like parse your alloys finely and and figure out the relation between the alloy and the tone that comes out of the pipe, you um, melt down you know different ratios of these things in a giant gas-fired crucible, mm-hmm. and then pour the molten metal into a wooden sled that you drag across a flat granite table, and then you've got yourself a sheet of metal. And after it cools, you come along with like an asbestos glove and and roll it up. So Rachel, what have you been uh, diving into in click spirals lately? So I have this problem, which is I've been trying to figure out how to digitize old photo albums. My parents have bookshelves and bookshelves of old photo albums, the kind with the the sticky pages and the cellophane. And all of them are starting to degrade. You can't open the cellophane or it often destroys the picture. Hmm. The pictures are on both sides. And so I've been, every time I, I visit my family, I try to, to help scan old photos digitize some of these photo albums. But the ones in the photo albums are really hard. You can't use a flatbed scanner because you have aberrations, visual aberrations from the cellophane. Mm -hmm. You can't just take a picture because they're weird reflections. You can send things to a service, but when you talk to the services, what they do is they take the photos out of the photo albums, Mm -hmm. but that in this case will destroy them. Mm -hmm. And so I've been searching the web and trying to figure out what do people do about this problem? Mm -hmm. Some people have set up, I guess there there are two ways that people photograph their old photo album pages. One is using a stand with a camera. Mm -hmm. And then another is to have, like there are various versions of DIY book scanners. I set up a quick and dirty prototype of one of the DIY book scanners just by taking some some heavy books and setting a, a photo album up at angles and using a tripod to put a camera directly in front of the page mm-hmm. and tried using a plate of glass. The problem is that you still have a lot of weird reflections. Mm. And I'm just curious what options there are. It also has to be something relatively affordable. These yeah. are not priceless photographs of <laughs> historic events. These are tons of snapshots yeah, yeah. of uh, my siblings right, and right. family vacations. So whatever solution the Library of Congress has come up with this is not necessarily something that you'll be able to adopt. Yeah, definitely. 
I feel like this is a problem that, you know, libraries have had to address for scanning things like laminated pages or, uh, you know, or glossy print. Mm -hmm. I wonder how that, probably a flatbed scanner. Do the, do the, the non-homogeneities like scoosh out if you put pressure on them? Like, no. could you get one of those like little like business card scanner things that you actually have to like manually run over the surface? Yeah, not, the... it doesn't work very well. I don't know if you guys remember those awful sticky cellophane pages. I think I know what you're talking about. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but the the page isn't really on there straight mm -hmm. and there are bubbles. Yeah. And uh, if I had a time machine, I could go back and mm -hmm. tell my mom not to not use Not to those. screw it up. Right, but, right. Uh, not yeah. it's not her fault but I, I feel like this is a problem that probably lots of people have yeah. and you can't really cut the pages because there are photos on the other side too mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, so i've just been uh, curious about how to solve this i've talked to a number of people about their book scanners and the, mm -hmm. the problem is that i think if we had better software to take out yeah. aberrations then that could work yeah 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 it sounds like a good hardware project actually yeah. it's a bit like a bit like printers scanners uh have just not advanced that much in the last you know decade or two they're still kind of the they, same. they all work in the same handful of ways the exception being that kind of book scanner that's become available that's basically a webcam on a stand and it points down and there's kind of a shadowless light configuration but yeah you still need the the software to remove the aberrations i don't have access to good lighting necessarily mm -hmm. And so that that's about when I, I gave up on the project was uh -huh. I had set up this prototype and I set up the tripod and the camera and realized that there were all sorts of glares from everywhere. Mm -hmm. And I don't mm -hmm. know anything about setting up professional glareless lighting. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, shadowless light you could set up with some pretty inexpensive strips of, of LEDs and then just angle them so that they're not glaring into the camera um, and that they cancel out each other's shadows. Someone might like this on Kickstarter. Yeah. Okay. Startup opportunity alert. Yeah. You heard it here in the solid podcast. For all the people that have really awful old photo albums with sticky pages. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I think if, if any of our listeners have suggestions, please email us at hardware at O'Reilly.com. That's right. We'll pass them on to Rachel. Maybe we can convince Rachel to have a hardware startup about this. <laughs> Unlikely. <laughs> but... <laughs> um. Rachel Kalmar, thank you so much for coming on. If people want to find you, where should they look? Probably the easiest place is Twitter. Okay. I'm Grapealope. Grape, what does that mean? That's a long story. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So find okay. Rachel at Grapealope on Twitter. And please tell us if anyone's uh, living room lights turned off as a result. Alexa, unlock the doors. <laughs> Alexa, play David Bowie. And Did that, David Bowie start? Yeah. Let us know. Hardware at O'Reilly.com. All right. We'll see you guys later. Bye. Thanks, Rachel. For links and other information related to this week's episode, visit O'Reilly.com slash hardware and send your questions and comments to hardware at O'Reilly.com. If you enjoyed the program, make sure you've subscribed on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, or your favorite podcasting platform. And if you really enjoyed it, consider leaving us a review. Until next time, I'm David Crane. And I'm John Bruner. <laughs>